Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 250. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jujitsu approach. And you know what? I like big round numbers. 250 is a big round number. So that requires a special guest. And I'm happy to be joined here by first timer to the podcast, Riley Stearns. Riley, how's it going? Everything's great. Thank you so much for having me. I am happy to have you, sir. Now, you are probably best known uh, for your real life. But of course, one of the reasons why you're known in the jujitsu community is because of your jujitsu life. So why don't we do maybe a quick intro? Tell us about who you are both on and off the mats. Yeah. So in my everyday life, I'm a filmmaker, a writer, director. I've made three features. Faults was the first one. Second one was the art of self-defense, which I think some people, at least in the BJJ community, are aware of. And then in 2020, I made a movie called Duel, which came out last year. And uh, I, on the mats... I'm a Sean Williams black belt as of January, been training for 10 years. I teach at Henzo Gracie Los Angeles and jujitsu is the best thing in the world. That's funny because we just had Sean Williams on the podcast a few weeks ago. So good oh, timing. So cool. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Sean's been my instructor since I was mid blue belt. I was three stripe blue belt when I moved over to what was then called five-star martial arts. He moved to Nashville, but I've kept in touch and he's helped guide me from afar. And when he was here in town, in January, he gave me my black belt. Nice. Well, congrats, sir. I have uh, always been a fan of Sean Williams. Getting him on this podcast was a bucket list item of mine. Um, he's been very influential to my jujitsu journey ever since I was a white belt. And we talked about this quite on quite a bit on the show when he was here. So super cool that you actually get to train under him. And yeah, I saw the social posts about it. Congrats on the black belt, man. That's a big deal. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, 10 years in, I'm definitely not a high level competitor or anything, but I do compete from time to time. I do train basically every day. I'm a six day a week person at this point and coming up under Sean and just like, I don't know, I'd already respected his jujitsu so much, but then actually getting to learn from him on a day to day basis when he was in Los Angeles, it was, it was a huge deal. And I owe a huge amount of my game to him and his concepts. He's one of the best teachers out there. And I still use his web resource, his, his website for all of my instruction, basically. So I go back to him daily to kind of remind myself how to best describe a certain technique or um, how to explain something in a way that makes sense mechanically instead of just saying, do this. He's, he's so good at saying why you do something, not just to do it. This to me is, man, it's a topic we've discussed uh, many times here. I think one of the challenges with the way most jujitsu instructors approach the practice is they will talk a lot about, you know, where the hand goes, where the leg goes. And there's a lot of monkey see, monkey do coaching where you're told yeah. to copy your instructor. 
but not enough instructors really get into the why. And for me, that is something that is crucially important for me to understand a technique. I mean, you can tell me all day long where to put my hands and legs, but if I don't understand why it matters, it just doesn't stick with me and I just, I'm not able to apply it properly. So I definitely relate to that as being a critical thing for instructors to say. Yeah. The thing that helps me is we're all different. All of our bodies can do different things in different ways. Knowing the baseline of why something should work, if I can't actually do it because, for example, I have a left hip issue where my entire life where it's just not as flexible as the right one. And so if I can understand why a technique works in a certain way, I can then say, okay, well, with that little constraint that I've got, how do I make that work for me, even if I can't do it the same way that I was shown? And I try to do that with other people. And I, everyone's got a different body type. Age also plays a factor. So that was something that I really got from Sean was how to explain the why. He has this uh, thing that he used to do with us, especially the people who he could see down the line teaching, where he would say, all right, how do I make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Tell me. And then you would start to describe it. And he would go, wait, the jar won't open. Like, how do I open the, the jar's not open. How do I open the jar? And then you go, oh, okay. So you say, well, you're going to turn it in a counterclockwise direction. And then he goes, what's counterclockwise? And he really started breaking it down of not just like assuming people understand something, actually explaining it in a way that's the most concise, but informative way possible. And I've always taken that sort of instruction with me. His instructor also hit one of his black belts, Dave Molina, Golden State Jiu-Jitsu is also somebody I model my teaching after. If I can teach a class, like even a fraction as good as Dane and Sean do, I feel like it's a, a success. Yeah. Something that Sean said when we were talking to him, and I just, I love this quote was systems don't have to be complicated. They just need to be complete. Yeah. And that really stuck with me because, I mean, look, I'm a dumbass. And the challenge that I have with <laughs> jiu-jitsu is so many of the systems out there that we're expected to learn and put into practice, they're incredibly complicated. And one thing that I've taken from my day job and learned applied to jiu-jitsu and really all aspects of my life is the understanding that making things simple is really the ultimate complexity. It's the hardest thing to do. Anyone can make something complex. But if you can take a complex thing and make it simple, that is like the highest level of understanding. And I really appreciate a lot of the guys like Sean that focus on trying to communicate things that way, because frankly, I just don't have the skill or attention span <laughs> to, to absorb things if they're overly complex. Yeah, I don't have a time to sit down and watch an instructional where it's like 20 minutes explaining one technique. When I do, it's cool. And there are people who are very good at that and I can get something out of it. But there's sometimes where I just need to see a five minute explanation of something that's also as informative as it can be. And yeah, in teaching, I try to be that way. I try to have fun with people. And we were all beginners at one point. So I'm just thinking like, well, how do I do this in a way that makes it exciting to them, but also doesn't bore them to tears? I don't have the technical know-how that Sean does. So if he goes down a rabbit hole and explains the hell out of something, I want to know why. But for me, I'm just trying to get across the idea in the best way possible. Well, let's get into how you do that. Something that you had flagged as a great topic of conversation here today would be work-life balance. Balancing the, the real world with this amazing fantasy world that is jiu-jitsu. It is a struggle that I have seen pretty much everyone go through in the sport. Not just competitors, although that obviously is a struggle for them, but hobbyists as well. You know, people who do this for fun have a tendency to really beat themselves up because they're, you know, they're usually not the toughest killer in the room just due to time it put in. And I would love to know as someone who has a very demanding and complicated job, but also still manages to train six days a week. That's incredible, by the way. I mean, for me, if I can get into the gym two or three days a week, it's a huge win. So I would love to just hear 
from your perspective, how do you balance this and kind of keep happy in all areas of your life when you're trying, you know, you know that time is a limited resource and investment in one area is going to pull you away from another? Well, I have a, a unique sort of situation in my career being very off and then very on when it's on. So I don't write every day. I don't make movies every day. But when I do go off and I shoot something, I'm gone for like six months at a time. And especially during this last shoot, I was in Finland making this film called Duel. And we shot there because of COVID restrictions. It was 2020 peak COVID restrictions. And we found a way of shooting it in Finland that not only was safe for us, but also cost effective considering the PPE that we were going to have to require and, and the testing in general. And, and so the unfortunate thing was that I trained one day in Tampere at a very high level school, went into the comp class, <laughs> gassed out pretty quickly too, because they had all been training hard and I had been not training as much. I have a pod that I was training with like three days a week and just trying to stay active, but I wasn't at comp level. Pertutepanen, who is an ADCC trials winner, at least a couple of times now, was one of the people I rolled with. Oh my God, he just destroyed me. And I had the best time left there. And then the next day I had a cold. And I was like, oh, man, if I get COVID during the shoot, it's going to ruin everything. And I can't be the one who shuts it down. So what I ended up having to do was say, I'm just not going to train for these the next four and a half months that I'm in Finland. I can't train. And I think because I've been through it before, uh, when I was a white belt, I made faults. When I was a blue belt, I made the art of self-defense. I knew that even though it was hard in the moment of not being able to train for those four and a half months, I knew that jujitsu was still going to be there for me when I got back. And actually, it's funny, we bring up Sean in the beginning because Sean's the person who first kind of said that to me and made me say, like, realize that jujitsu is going to always be there, whether it's like your life goes down a path where, I don't know, whatever it is, your job affects it, your family life affects it. Maybe you get sick. I know people who have had cancer and jujitsu is something that they want to do, but they have to take time away from the mats, protect themselves to get well who come back and come back and eventually start training again. And, and just knowing that it's always going to be there, I think is a big thing that maybe early on, I got afraid that I was away editing faults and I was gone for like three or four months. And then I was kind of like, well, what if I forgot everything? Oh man, my cardio is going to be bad and, and all of that. And I got scared about going back. I didn't have that same fear this time. And I think that that's something that just kind of comes with time on the mats. You know that you're going to always be able to return and But in the meantime, you can take care of what you got to take care of. So I do have a weird circumstance in, in the sense that there are people who have nine to fives who have to balance work and life a little differently and people who have families. I mean, I'm a single guy. I just go and train because I don't have any other real things that prevent me from doing it on a day-to-day -day basis. But then when I'm not able to do it, it's for a long period of time. And that's the tricky thing for me. But yeah, just remembering that jujitsu is always going to be there, I think, is a big lesson that I've learned. That is something that a lot of people really struggle with. And it's interesting because it's a concern that in a lot of ways is somewhat unique to jujitsu. You don't tend to see this with a lot of other hobbies. And I think everyone's been through this. I mean, jujitsu has this weird ability to infiltrate your life and take over your whole personality. I mean, I think, you know, before, you know, when you start as a white belt, before you know it, this whole thing is the only thing you're talking about. You're driving your friends and family crazy. You're putting BJJ in your Instagram handle. In some <laughs> cases, for some of us, you know, we're, I'm not going to name names, but some of us make major motion pictures about martial arts. 
farts, you know, that kind of thing <laughs> happens. So jujitsu is weird in that way. And people, especially early on, really struggle with the idea of taking time off. Everyone, I think, when they get injured the first time and they realize, man, I might have to miss two to four weeks of this. It feels like this insurmountable hurdle. Yeah. Like, what am I going to do now? Life's over. What am I going to do for a month if I don't have jujitsu? And it's funny because this is the only hobby I know of where people react that way. People who have to leave town for a month and can't play Call of Duty or finish watching Succession, <laughs> you know, they, they yeah. don't freak out in the same way. But jujitsu, people have this self-imposed guilt if they can't train. And I find that to be a very interesting thing about the hobby. Yeah, I think too, especially in the early belts, you see people, and I know that I was guilty of this in a way too, you see your friends getting better, your training partners getting better. And in your head, you're saying, I'm losing it. They're going to get far better than me, faster. I'm like losing ground right now. And I think that that is a less of a fear as we go up in the belts because you realize that everything's relative. Everyone has things that are going to take them away for a little bit. We all learn in different rates and different speeds and retain information differently. I do notice my white and blue belt uh, training partners and students worrying about when they're gone about other people getting better. It's weird. It's not even about like, oh, I can't train. I'm so bummed, even though that is a thing. But you do see people saying, man, my friend is getting better and I can't do it. And that's an interesting aspect of it too, that I think uh, we all have like little egos in jujitsu, even though people don't think like they like to talk about now nah, there's no egos in jujitsu. Obviously there is, but I do see that as well. And I find it fascinating because, because yeah, even like one of our competition blue belts recently hurt himself at a competition. And right now all he's worried about is there's this one guy in the class who's getting better in his mind than he is. And he's like, oh, I'm losing ground to that guy. So you don't have that in other hobbies as well. You don't have people making models going like, ah, oh, dang, I can't make a model right now. My friend's going to get so much better at model making than me. It's 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 a funny <laughs> sport, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it's interesting back on the topic of film. When I saw Fight Club back in the 90s, I thought, you know, this is a cute idea that these grown men would have this weird escape where they go beat the shit out of each other and it just brings them closer together. But that's totally unrealistic. That would never happen in the real world. Then in the <laughs> 2000s, I start jujitsu and I realize, oh, actually, it's a thing. There's yeah. a reason for this. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Because jujitsu is a practice, you know, when you're rolling, you're in there with another person. It's very easy to turn this into a mind game against yourself where you're always holding up a measuring stick to see how yeah. you stack up against your training partners. We've always talked on the podcast about how that, that is not really a productive mindset if you want to grow over the long term, especially if these are your friends. But it's so hard to avoid that trap. Um, like you said, I remember this very distinctly. I remember when I was a white belt, I had a gym rival. There was this guy who was, you know, same experience as me, same body type as me, similar game to me, similar age to me. And I was obsessive about every day you know, how am I stacking up against this one dude? And it's funny because I don't think he has any inkling that I was his gym rival. It was totally a one-way <laughs> relationship. I don't think he thought twice about me. But for me, a lot of what I did was holding this guy up as a measuring stick. And again, as you get older and you mature more, you realize that that is not a very productive mindset to hold over the long term. It's just not going to help you grow. And moreover, it's probably honestly, it's going to make you miserable and resent your training partners. Yeah, definitely. And I think recently too, having, I had black belt friends who were telling me around the time that I was thinking like, or I guess they were kind of hinting that promotion was probably coming. I got the advice that it's your favorite roles from now on are going to be with brown and black belts because there's no real danger of like the spazziness and stuff. And they kind of know where they're at in their jujitsu game. And 
And those are going to be their heart, in some ways, the hardest roles, but also the most fun and freeing. And you're going to have people who are white, blue, and purple coming at you not only as hard as they can because they want to like tap a black belt, but even more so, they're just like, I can throw the kitchen sink at this person and they can take it because they're a black belt. And I'm now realizing that, especially with white and blue belts, they're going so hard because they're like, well, I can try anything. He won't get hurt. Like he knows what to do. And if anything, I, I feel like those roles are so scary now. Even at brown belt, I didn't feel that same sort of energy. And it's not with everybody. I think it's a blanket statement. But yesterday I had a really good role with one of our white belts who's getting pretty good. And he got me, I let him kind of get to side and I was letting him work and working my defense. And one of those things where you're trying to get out something out of a role with somebody who maybe doesn't have the same level of technique you have, but maybe a little bit stronger. And so you're trying to figure some stuff out with them and workshop. And he put me in sort of a crucifix position. And I was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then like 10 seconds were left. And then he starts applying an actual shoulder lock. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to tap to this. This isn't on. And then before you know it, it was on. I tapped. And it was so cool. Like I felt so ha like proud that he was able to do that. Um, gave him all the compliments. Was just like, man, that that was on. Really happy with your your progress lately. And as a like blue belt, somebody does that to you, you're not congratulating them on it. You're not like surprised. You're just like, ah, dang, he got me. I think that that mental aspect has been changing for me recently, even more so being a teacher. I think I'm even more proud when a random submission comes from somebody that you're not expecting. And even if you put yourself in the position to begin with, I think it's it's cool. And I feel like my defense is pretty good. I feel so much prouder now just knowing that somebody actually got me. That's a cool feeling. Yeah, that's a major change in mentality as you get older. You start looking at the people in your gym less as rivals and more as people that you can elevate, right? Yeah. Because if you can help elevate them, not only does it help them, but honestly, it actually helps you. Because a challenge that a black belt often has is they've usually got more mad experience than 90% of the people in the room, right? So it does get a little bit mundane if there's only a few people there who can really match you on a technical level. But if you can start elevating the white and the blue belts and the purple belts, you know, it gets to the point where they start having a complete enough game that they can make you work. And perhaps more importantly, like you said, you're no longer terrified for your life, which, which is, yeah. that is always my experience with the lower <laughs> belts is I'm not worried about their technique. I'm not even worried about them tapping me. I'm worried about them trying to do a backflip and landing on my nose, right? That's what I'm worried about. Of course. Yeah. In a weird position with, I'm part of the uh, WGA, which is the Writers Guild of America. And because all of my scripts have been purchases, not for hire. I wasn't hired to write them. I, they bought them from me to then make the films. I They don't have to pay me as an employee into my WGA sort of health insurance. So I haven't had health insurance in six years, which is really stupid considering what I do for a living. So the roles where I can trust somebody and feel like relatively safe about the person I'm training with, those are, those are the roles I like. Outing myself for being, a like you said, a dumbass. You called yourself a dumbass. I don't have health insurance and I do jujitsu six days a week. Yeah, there are things about rolling that are obviously you're taking a risk, but calculated risks are ones that I prefer. Yeah, same here. I mean, I have, as I've gotten older, very much tailored my whole game toward to be less like, how do I beat the other black belts in the room? And more like, how do I reduce my risk of injury against the white belts in the room? <laughs> that, yeah. that is very much my focus these days. For sure. Yeah. And um I guess going back to kind of mentioning how your life is immediately affected by your training. Yeah, like you said, I ended up kind of falling in love with it almost right away. It took me a while to get to the point where my cardio allowed me to roll as much as I wanted to. I I came into it 180 pounds. I'm 
I started competing like late blue belt around 147. I was a featherweight. I'm walking around a little heavier now on purpose. I'm trying to add a little muscle, but uh, I lost a decent amount of weight. I gained muscle from it. And then once I did that, I just became obsessed. And it was around the time that I was a blue belt that I said, I can't come up with an idea that's exciting. Why don't I just set something in the world of martial arts? And so the art of self-defense fully, like you said, fully influenced by my jujitsu and training. And I definitely get comparisons to like the fight club of it all. But uh, it was fully just based on my own experience, obviously a heightened experience um, (laughs) compared to the movie. But that was definitely a movie made by a very obsessed jujitsu blue belt for sure. Well, this is an interesting question here because in this case, you almost found another outlet for jujitsu other than just training. And this is something that I've had on my mind recently, especially, you know, coming out of the pandemic, like you said, my training was tremendously impacted during that time. I was basically off the mats for two years, really. And I was able to stay engaged in the community by making content. In the past, when I've had to take layoffs, if I just, you know, put the book aside and totally forget about jujitsu, it's harder to come back. But I found that by staying engaged and by making content that was related to jujitsu, when I did come back, yes, my cardio was in the tank, but it didn't really feel like I had ever left, even though it had been a actually a very long time. I'm wondering if you find that your creative outlet is kind of a way that you can stay engaged with jujitsu when real life gets in the way as well, or is that just me? Funnily enough, even though I've already made a movie set in the world of martial arts, for people who don't know, it's um, a movie that takes place in the world of karate, because at the time I was just like, yeah, I don't think uh, people rolling around on the mats is going to be as visually exciting to the layman as a karate film. And I also thought that it was a little bit more fun to kind of play with the whole guy kicking and punching in his late, I guess, mid-30s and and just like really taking to that whole aspect of it. Definitely not making fun of karate, but being like, yeah, people know what that is. Like, let's let's go down that road. But um, even though I've already made something in that space, I still have so many people who are like, when are you going to make your jujitsu movie? When's that going to happen? And to be honest, I don't think I ever will. I, I really would love to see some more jujitsu films come about. I don't like to retread where I've been, even though I have themes that I've explored a couple of different times in different ways. I do think I've made my martial arts film, but a really fun creative outlet recently is I've been, because of the strike, I finally decided that I wanted to do this thing that I've been wanting to do for a bit. I started this thing called Hobbyist, which is similar to like a podcast. It's it's keeping me engaged in jujitsu even while I can't be creative in my other sort of way and screenwriting and going off and making a movie because we're on strike, I can go out and shoot open mats and hopefully very soon start doing more, I guess, selected profiles on athletes, high-level athletes. Uh, And it's been really fun just like diving into that, shooting basically skate videos, but for jujitsu. So like you said, at some point, if I were to get injured or need to take time away for whatever reason, I would still have a thing that's going to keep me engaged in the community. And I think that that's super important for me. And I am glad that something like that we can find things like that outside of it. I don't know that there's a lot of other people that get that obsessed, like you said, about their hobby that they, if they can't do it, they still obsess about it in a way that makes them find another way that they can still connect with it. And I could be fully missing things that are like that. But I think as an overall jujitsu people, like you said, just get so obsessed that we got to find a way to stay connected or else you're going to lose it all together. So yeah, I like that there's opportunities for staying engaged regardless of mat time. Well, what I would want to know is 
on the topic of the jujitsu obsession, <laughs> do you think that's a healthy thing or not? I mean, many people, myself included, I think yourself included, have seen serious benefit throughout their life from training jujitsu. But I think there's also other people who maybe don't see it the same way. I know he's probably just being controversial, but Craig Jones recently, you know, has argued that jujitsu has ruined more lives than it saved. I don't agree with that necessarily, although I don't have the data. But I do know that there are people who they train a lot and they're miserable, right? And I wonder, do you think that that obsessive nature with jujitsu is a good thing for more people? Or do you think that there can be downsides to that kind of mindset? Yeah, I mean, I I can't speak to other people. I, I think that Craig definitely is one of the funnier people in the community. And I think that that statement is very on brand for him. I do know that for myself, and this is something that I was going to mention earlier and kind of got sidetracked uh, uh, accidentally. So I'm glad you brought it back to this. I actually feel like because I'm so satiated from training, I'm so just like, that's when I go and I train, I feel like I've accomplished everything I wanted for the day. And I think that that's actually been a detriment to my creative aspects, uh, or I guess my creative sort of side. I think that when I come home and have that feeling of just like, awesome, everything was great. I did my training, got my workout in for the day. That was super fun. Time to watch some jujitsu videos, <laughs> like watching who's number one tonight, which I can't wait. I sometimes go... I don't feel like creating. I feel like I've already accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. And I think that that's been my negative experience. So as a positive, uh, I, or positives, I can count health. I can count friendship. I can count well, just like the learning, like the mental aspect of it all. But I think the negatives for me is that it's almost been too good for me. And I think that there are people who definitely have had jujitsu ruin their bodies, the ruin their knees, ruin their shoulders. Um, ruin relationships. There's definitely negative aspects to it, but I think as an overall, it's a good thing. But I have definitely needed to talk to myself recently more seriously about maybe it's time you take a little bit more time away from the mats and focus on your career. The problem right now, though, is we're in the middle of the strike, so it's not like I can go out and you're technically not supposed to be writing during it anyway. I mean, people do and they write under the table and stuff, but I haven't been motivated in that way because I've been training so much and teaching so much that I'm like, well, I can't make anything anyway. So I'm just going to write once this thing is over. And I don't think that that's been healthy. And especially career wise, it's the thing that makes me money. Like I can make a tiny bit of money teaching, but not nearly what I could do if I go off and make a, a feature. And I'm on the indie side of things. So it's not like I'm making gigantic sums of money. But it's what's going to keep me housed. And so I have to find a better balance myself of work and play. And I think that that's a good thing that I've been able to realize recently, but it's also something that I haven't been able to fully figure out yet, too. Yeah, I can relate. I have seen it from both sides. When I was younger and I discovered jujitsu, I was so into it for a while that basically it was the only thing I cared about. And I think my work probably did suffer. I mean, I was still able to get through the day, get things done, but ultimately it wasn't my priority. For a long time, jujitsu was my priority. And like any relationship, you know, you kind of get past the honeymoon phase and things settle down a bit. And I think I have a healthier relationship with that now. But I've also seen the other side, especially, like I said, whenever there's a long layoff that I have to take and I don't have jujitsu in my life for a period of time, my natural inclination is to throw myself at my work instead and just be 100% focused on that. And I don't think that's good for me either, because then I'm not getting that physical activity. 
I no longer have that third place where I can talk to my friends and I can connect with other people. You know, you can get very isolationist if you're working all the time. So I think if there's one benefit to jujitsu, it's when you can use it as balance and perspective. You know, maybe it's not your whole life. Even pro competitors tell you, you should never make jujitsu your whole life, but it's there as a balancer, right? It kind of helps give you perspective to the other things. It gives you an outlet. It gives you an escape. And I think that kind of healthy balance is where it's most useful, at least from my experience. Yeah, I definitely am still finding that balance. Even 10 years in, I'm finding that balance. And it's funny you mentioned the honeymoon phase because I feel like even in the past like three years, I've fallen even more in love with it than I already was, which is insane to even think about because I was already obsessed. So finding that balance is going to be key going forward. I turned 37 at the end of June and my body is definitely, I'm still feeling great. And I go with the young guys and have fun rounds and I know how to, I don't know, balance their explosiveness and their endless gas tanks with my technique and then my open guard and kind of leg locks and everything. But I'm definitely not recovering from a day-to-day basis in the way that I used to. And I've only, even in the past few weeks, I've noticed that more and more. So I think going forward, that part of my body kind of reacting to training differently is going to maybe help the balance kind of form because I won't be able to train as often as I used to and I won't be able to go as hard as I used to. So maybe if anything, my age is going to be the thing that finally equalizes everything. But knowing us jujitsu people, well, I'll probably way too long to do that. And then my body will get hurt and we're wrecked in some way because of it. Yeah, it's definitely a conversation I have with myself often is just like, how are you going to find this sort of uh, happy medium between training too much and working too much. And I don't know that I'll ever fully find it, but I am at least actively conversating with myself. That's not a word. I'm actively having the conversation with myself. Uh, and I think that's part of this, at least me heading in the right direction. The challenge that I have as I get older and I've got kids and more life responsibilities is I just can't put the time into training that I used to. I used to be a total mat rat. I'd be there all the time. I had a lot more time to do things like study and watch instructionals and practice more deliberately. And the challenge that I have as I get older and I've got more stuff going on is, man, I'm lucky these days if I can make it to the gym a few times a week to train. And when you're only training a few times a week, you're kind of mostly in maintenance mode. You know, you're lucky if you can just kind of keep your edge. You don't really have the time to crack open the book and study a totally new area of the game and bolt on new techniques and systems. It's just very hard to do with limited time. And so the challenge that I've had is to give myself permission to do jujitsu within that limited time window. And, you know, there's some guilt that comes along with that. You see other people coming and they're getting exponentially better because they're younger and they're on the mats more and they're more focused on it. But the challenge with having that more balanced relationship with jujitsu is you have to accept that taking the foot off the gas means, like you mentioned earlier, those other people that might pass you by. And if your ego's tied up in that and you got a problem with that, you're going to be miserable. But the thing that I've kind of come to terms with as I get older is, look, it's totally fine if someone who is doing this five times more than me and is doing the semi-pro, I should expect them to be better than me. I should celebrate that, right? I shouldn't be upset about that. That's a good thing. I mean, if I went to my accountant and my accountant was better at accounting than me, I wouldn't beat myself up over it. I would expect (laughs) that because they're an expert in this. They do it every day, right? And I think that 
as hobbyists, we sometimes beat ourselves up too much because we hold ourselves to the standard of the people who are doing this full time. And I don't know if that's really healthy, right? I think it's okay to put a box around jujitsu and say, this is how much I'm willing to invest into this. And this is the role this has in my life. And I'm okay with the fact that there's a ceiling for me if I'm only training within this window, right? I think that coming to terms with that is a much more healthy way to look at the sport for people who are kind of getting older and maybe they do this for fun rather than for a job. Yeah, for sure. I think there's also something we said about as you, and you'll hear this in every sport, particularly like sports where it's like a person versus another person, like wrestling or jujitsu, where the coach that used to train will say, I want you to be better than me. And I do believe that. And I'm seeing it even more now as I start coaching the younger students at competitions and really find what their path is and their trajectory, their sort of potential. I want to make them better than me. And so if I can get them to where they're working me, I feel like I'm doing my job. I think that that's where eventually my main passion will probably be. I'll, I'll probably be on the mats and I'll probably be rolling with people still. But at a certain point, it's going to be more all right, we're passing this on and we're going to make these athletes even better than we were. Me and all of the black belts that are under Sean that we kind of all came up together at the gym, I think that we all tend to be more hobbyist guys who also in the room can work people who compete maybe at like the blue and purple belt level, very, very competitive world level athletes. We can do very well with them. And, and I think that that's cool because not every gym has that sort of ability. But when a guy who comes in who's about to go, we've got one guy right now, this um, kind of a new guy at our gym who's a black belt, has been training for 12 years. He's basically on the path to be in the UFC within a year or two. When I don't get submitted by him, maybe <laughs> five times in a round, like when I make it out of there and I'm like, he only got me three times. I have to consider those wins. And it was hard even when we, I started training with him going like, damn it, I got tapped like five times by this guy. And I think one of the owners, the gym said to me something like, right, he's a, he's a pro athlete. He's built different. This is his entire life. And it's funny that even as hobbyists, I sometimes still have that, damn it, I should have done better against so-and-so or such and such. But it's still, and it's never in an ego way. It's always in a oh, that was super fun, but I could have done this or could have done that. It's more about like myself rather than them. All of that's like interesting too, as I get older and just saying, it's okay. They're different. They're on a path that's so different than mine. I'm lucky that I get to do this and train. Like, I think another cool thing about jujitsu is that you can be a basketball player and be super good, but you're never going to get chances to play with NBA athletes. And in jujitsu, I've gotten the chance to roll with world champions. I've gotten the chance to roll with people who have medaled at ADCC. I, it's almost like we get to like train with the Michael Jordans. And it's such a cool sport in that regard. And it's so open. And, and I think the way that people cross train now and welcome visitors, everything about the sport's just getting cooler and cooler for me. So I'm going to be connected to it for the rest of my life. But yeah, the goals are sort of shifting. Now, something I want to pick your brain about, you talked about this earlier, long layoffs. They're inevitable. When you're new to the sport, your first layoff is going to feel absolutely brutal and you're not going to know what to do with yourself. But another thing that's unique about jujitsu is the challenge of coming back. If you take a layoff from, I don't know, spin class, right? 
you can come back whenever you want. Maybe I'm oversimplifying spin class. I don't know. But in jujitsu, there's that measuring stick. You're going to go in there and people are going to have better cardio than you and they're sparring directly against you and they're going to try to pin and submit you. And for a lot of people, I think part of the reason it's hard to come back from a layoff isn't just because the layoff was hard, but because you know when you come back you're just going to get toyed around with. Everyone's going to have better cardio. They're going to have learned stuff that you don't know. You're going to be behind where you were. People will have passed you by, and it's going to take you a while to get back to the point you were at before. And I think all of that combined makes it hard sometimes for people to return from layoffs. I would want to hear your thoughts on that, and if you think that's a real thing or if that's something that you've experienced personally. Yeah. So I would say first, I do think that there's a difference between like a spin class and a jujitsu thing. I do very much think that when you are competing against yourself only, it's way easier to say, I didn't spin as well as I spun last time or whatever we would say, <laughs> or like in weightlifting, okay, my personal best is this. And right now I'm lifting way under that. You know what you need to do to get to that next point. It's just a matter of putting that work back in. But like you said, with jujitsu, it's going to be harder mentally because of all the things that you listed. It's going to be challenging because you're getting work. You're going to run out of cardio you're not learning the things like they they have secrets they've learned that you haven't learned. The problem is that that you need to have one layoff and come back from that layoff at least once to, I think, understand that it will be OK. I think that most people are too afraid or I think a lot of people, it's why a lot of blue belts kind of don't come back is that the, it's such a long belt. People get injured. Life changes. They have their big layoff and they say, Ah, maybe I guess I'm just not going to do jujitsu anymore. I think they let it get in their head. I had a layoff as white belt where I injured my shoulder. Somebody got me in a De La Hiva sweep and I landed hard on my shoulder. And I was so injured from that, like didn't require surgery or anything, but so injured that I had to take at least, I want to say it was like a month or two off. And I think the hardest part about that was, like you said, the coming back of it all. But having come back, it was easier in future instances of long breaks of saying, I remember what that was like. It doesn't feel good for a little while, but uh, actually can work. Like I can come back from this. There's two things though that happen, I would say, is that you're either a white belt and you didn't really know that much to begin with. And so you're going to get worked by people who are already working you. Or the hard thing is just like, yeah, just knowing that. Or you're a brown belt. And you get injured or you have like a kid and then you come back after that long stint and you know that there are going to be competitive blue and purple belts who are going to bring it and put it on you. And that's also hard in its own way. But I think that you've got the maturity of knowing that that's okay, that you've probably been through those layoffs before. I think it would probably be hardest for somebody who had never been injured, never had any sort of significant time away from the mats and made it to purple or brown, maybe harder in some ways than that white belt who's kind of coming back after a few months. I haven't experienced that, so I don't know if that's the case, but I imagine that that's got to be a tricky sort of thing. But yeah, I don't know, man. It's it's just got to experience it once to know that it's okay. It's going to be okay. And uh, luckily, I think most people have had that experience and had it uh, play out in that sort of way. But yeah, you just know that it's going to suck for a while. That's fantastic advice. I think you're probably right that that is likely why you see a lot of attrition at the white and the blue belt level. I suspect that probably a lot of the blue belt departures that we always talk about are probably, they weren't probably intended to be that way. They were probably intended to be a temporary layoff, but then the motivation 
was gone. And then there was fear of what's it going to be like when I come back. I can tell you, I mean, I've had a lot of layoffs throughout jujitsu. I've had injuries, luckily nothing terrible, but I've had to take time off for a few weeks here and there. And yeah, the first time it absolutely sucks, right? The first time it feels like it's just the worst thing in the world. And you're terrified that you're going to fall behind and you feel guilty because you're not training. But then after a while, after you've had it happen once, And if it happens again, you've been through the process. It's not scary anymore. Like you said, you know that jujitsu will still be there for you when you get back. So you kind of have a a longer perspective on things. When my daughter was born, I took a long time off to kind of help raise her and get her, you know, an age where it would be easier to kind of manage her. And so I took a lot of time off jujitsu and that was pretty hard. I really struggled with the motivation to come back, but I did. And yeah, sure enough, you know, it was tough for the first month or so, but then it was fine. Yeah. And when the pandemic happened, I mean, a lot of people I know really struggled with that. I think because this was their first big jujitsu layoff and they didn't know how to cope with it. But luckily for me, I had had that situation before where I'd had to take extended time off. And so for me, it didn't bother me, I think that much because I'd already been through this and I knew it would be okay, right? I knew it would still be there when I got back. And yeah, if you take your foot off the gas for a while, there's going to be a bit of rust when you come back, but that's, you can overcome that, right? And if you lost your edge, well, you can always get that back at some point, right? I think that giving yourself that permission to step away when you need to is part of mental health. And it's an important thing with anything that you're doing, jujitsu especially, because people tend to beat themselves up a lot when they have to take time off. Yeah. And I think the other piece of advice that I've gotten and tried to participate in myself and I recommend other people do is that if you have any reason that you're not able to train, whether it's a medical thing or a mental thing, or I guess barring a family thing where like you actually just like can't make it to the gym, always try when you're able to go in and just watch the class and hang out and watch the roles and talk to people. I find when I, if it's something as simple as I'm getting a tattoo and I can't train for three days, during those three days, at least two of the three, I'm going in there and I'm watching class and I'm hanging out with my friends and I'm giving advice because I'm in the position where I'm able to. But even as a white or a blue belt, I think I mainly started at blue belt because Sean really, really drove that into us. You should be at class watching and taking notes even if you can't be participating. I try to always do that. And it's been really cool to see how many of my white belts, especially at the school in general, not even just my students, but other students who come in just because I can't do it right now, whether it's a surgery that they had or whatever reason that they can't be on those mats, they're making up for it by being mentally engaged with it. And I think that that makes it easier to come back from as well, rather than you've been gone for a month, you already didn't know a lot of these people because you just started jujitsu, but you got injured, you took that time off and you were like, ah, well, I don't have this connection to the gym. It was fun, but man, it's going to feel a little awkward. And I'm now worried about my cardio and yada, yada. If you at least make the time to show up every once in a while, it's not going to feel like that scary thing. It's going to feel familiar. You're going to talk to people maybe who you didn't talk to before. And I also think that not only watching instruction, not being able to do it, watching instruction and then watching other students like who are either peers of yours or people who are better than you, watching the differences in the way that people drill the same thing that they were just taught. Everyone saw the exact same thing, but now they're interpreting it in different ways. That's also hugely informative too. And I think that it helped me learn how to drill techniques better as well. So I think if anything, just showing up will help in some way. And then if you're able to work out on the side, then by all means. But if you're not able to, at least getting that mental workout, I think is important and social, social workout. Yeah, that is fantastic, fantastic advice. The hardest part about a routine is creating the routine. 
once you've got a routine, keeping it in maintenance mode is a lot easier than dropping off and having to start all over again. You're not the only person who's told me this. Uh, Stefan Kesting has shared the same idea as has uh, Nick Perler, uh, ace wrestling coach out of Missouri. They've come on the podcast and talked about this before, which is, look, if for some reason you can't train, the best thing to do is to still keep that routine into your life. Even if that means just going to the gym to hang out and socialize. I mean, you know, people always make fun of us old black belts because all we do is we go to the mats and just talk and we don't actually train, but <laughs> that's important, right? Yeah. Keeping the routine going is important and that's way better than falling off the horse and having to go through the massive work of rebuilding a lost routine. That's always going to be harder than just showing up, saying hi, talking to your friends, even if you can't train. And I think like you mentioned, I mean, you will be shocked at how much you learn just by watching, even if you're not doing it. I think there is this myth that the only way to get better at jujitsu is to actually do it. Of course, that's the foundation, right? You have to do jujitsu to get better at it. But if you supplement that with things like study or even just talking about it, it keeps you engaged in a way that I think will surprise people. I mean, I've had to take long layoffs, but I stayed mentally engaged, continued doing this podcast, had a lot of conversations about it. And I was really surprised at how well that actually translated to performance when I came back. Yeah, of course. I mean, I've, I've done it. Like I said, since Blue Belt, even uh, there was a time where Danaher came for a seminar and I stupidly had scheduled, I mean, I couldn't have known, but I had scheduled a tattoo that was going to be healing while he was there. And so I asked Sean, hey, Sean, do you mind if I just go and sit on the bench and watch the seminar? And he said, absolutely. I'm like, we want you here. I want you watching it. I want you taking it in. Didn't charge me for it. Just let me kind of sit on the sidelines. And what was cool was getting to watch when you're drilling, you're drilling with your partner and you're kind of in your own pseudo conversation, not just like vocally, but you're in a conversation with your drills and your mo motions and movements. I got to then watch John walk around and give the advice to each group. And I got pieces that weren't just based on what I needed to be doing if I was drilling it, but I got to hear him give advice to the black belts that was maybe slightly more intricate than he gave to the white and blue belts that were drilling the same technique. So even, yeah, it's just so much can be gotten from that sort of opportunity. If you want to look at it as an opportunity, it's different. It may not be like the exact opportunity that you want, but like try to think of it as an opportunity. How am I going to learn differently during this time? Yeah, you'll learn this when you get to black belt. I mean, you definitely know this. I know this, but a lot of the time when there's a big class, if there's an odd man out, often the most senior person in the room kind of steps out of the training and just acts as a teacher. This happens a lot in our class, right? If there's two white belts who need to be partnered and I'm the odd man out, I'm not going to interrupt their training. I'm going to let them train because I can step out and help with the teaching. And if you pull yourself out of the actual one-on-one, -on -one, I'm the person on the mat doing the training, and you learn to look at things from the teacher's perspective or a holistic view of the whole class and see what everyone else is doing, why and where other people might be struggling, it can really open up your perspective and make you realize things that you don't see when you're the one in there doing the movements yourself, right? Because you're so focused on your own body. I mean, it's like watching a film, right? Sometimes you take a step back and you see other people's experiences and it can open your eyes in ways that you just wouldn't get if you were just doing the routine yourself over and over again. 100%. Yeah. It, whether it's the one person stepping out and helping coach, which we've been having to do a lot uh, recently because of how big our class sizes have been got, getting, or it's sometimes there's a person that's their first day 
I'll actively say, hey, I'll take that. I'll take the first day person and, and we'll work on something on the side. But yeah, whether in whatever way, I feel like I can learn so much just by working with somebody who has no introduction to jujitsu whatsoever. And I get to be like, what would I want to hear on my first day? What would I want to learn? How would I want to be treated? And I look at it all as just like a fun opportunity. I've said it before, and I think I uh, <laughs> am a broken record when it comes to it. Jiu-jitsu is my favorite thing in the world. If I could make money doing jujitsu um, in sort of a meaningful way, I would. But I love making films too. And films are always going to be a passion of mine. But there's just something, I'm so connected to jiu-jitsu in such a way that I don't think that I have that same connection to film. Whereas some of my friends who are full-on cinephiles and just like eat, sleep, and breathe movies, that's their jujitsu, And I get that. But I like that I have two things that I love in my life. And it's okay to be like, oh, it's okay. I like jujitsu a lot. And I maybe like it more than I like movies. And that's okay. I'm one of the weirdo directors who who has something that he has passion about outside of the film world. But yeah, again, it's, it's just something that I'm going to do the rest of my life. You know, as a career guy myself, this is a challenge I've always faced on the job. I've always felt this pressure to make work my entire life. I work in technology and I mean, I don't do it so much anymore, but when I was more junior and I was a software engineer, there was rough because there's so much to keep on top of. And there's this expectation that you're always learning, you're always improving. And the only way to really do that and to do it at the highest level, I guess, is to really make it your whole life. You know, it's tough when a lot of your coworkers go home and they're studying all night, you know, and they're trying to learn more and you just want to go do something fun. Right. But <laughs> I found that pressure myself. And the nice thing about jujitsu is it gave me an outlet and a, it gave me a place of balance where I could give myself permission to go and do something else. And I started to see the benefit of diversifying my life in that way and not being too overly obsessed about one thing. And interestingly, what I found, I mean, everyone's mileage may vary. You tell me if this is your experience, but I found that focusing on jujitsu and making it an important part of my life actually helped my career in ways I didn't expect. I had previously been so focused on, you know, learning to trade. But once I started to expand my life and to become, you know, a father and to get into jujitsu and have these other core pillars of my life, the more I diversified my life, the more perspective it gave me and the better it actually made me at my real job. I would love to know if that's a shared experience or if that's just something for me. Yeah. I mean, overall, it's made, it made me a better person. And I think that this is exactly why I made the art of self-defense. So, I mean, a literal answer to that is that jujitsu influenced my career in the sense that I'm, I took something that I loved and was able to make something out of it that in the art of self-defense that people, I think most people think that that's my best film. And I'd love that film with all my heart. And I think it influenced my like weird obsession with weird jujitsu stuff. And I don't know, like trying to put all of my favorite things in one movie led to a movie that I am very proud of. And I played big festivals. It, it did well at the box office. They got people like Jesse Eisenberg excited about being in it. And yeah, so literally helped me and helped my career and led to something positive. Going off The Art of Self-Defense, though, like the reason I wrote that script is that at that time, I didn't really feel like a man, or at least what society's expectation of me as a man was. And so I started jujitsu because I was afraid of other men. I was afraid of the idea of, at that time I was married and I was afraid of the idea of being in a public place or like somewhere I had to defend my wife, my then wife, and I wouldn't be able to. Like that scared me deeply. And I started training literally in the beginning just because I wanted to learn how to defend myself. 
And then once I started getting into the sport, I realized that I just love the sport of it too. And as a byproduct, I was also going to learn how to defend myself. So it was a nice balance. It led to me, it went from me being so afraid that I needed to do something to me being like, I love this so much and it's going to help me with that fear. And it did. And so I wrote The Art of Self-Defense at a time when I was still kind of in the middle. Like I said, I was a blue belt. Still in the middle of figuring out who I was. I was still like kind of getting in shape. I was still gaining some confidence. But that feeling started to like jujitsu changed who I was as a man and who I felt like I could be. And so not only in a sense of the career and a sense of my life, but for the art of self-defense, it was kind of both. It was a mirror of who I was, who I wanted to be and who I would eventually become and also happened to be a movie about my favorite thing. So yeah, I strongly believe that as long as you have the right idea, the right attitude, you can be influenced in a great way life-wise and career-wise, but it's something too that it's not going to just do that for you. You have to take those steps. You have to put in that work. And But I'm very fortunate that I got to basically at one point I was struggling with an idea after I made my first feature and I worked on this idea and I just kept thinking, like, why isn't it feeling the same way? My first feature kind of just wrote itself. And this one just is fighting me every sense in every which way. And then I had a conversation one day with my agent. And right before he said it, I thought to myself, why don't I make a movie about jujitsu? And maybe not literally jujitsu, but I was like, why don't I just make something about this thing that I love? And then maybe 10 seconds later, he said, why don't you just make a movie about jujitsu? And so embracing that at that right moment, I think is why that movie feels so different and so kind of its own thing. And I think it really set the tone for the rest of my career. I think it's going to be the movie that most people know me for, at least until I make that thing that maybe feels like, or maybe gets a little bit more traction than that did even. But um, yeah, it's been a huge influence creatively. And even just like my whole life, I've liked kind of the weirder things. Like I grew up Primus was my favorite band and the movies that I liked were more obscure and a little on the darker, weirder side. The kind of movies that I make tend to be that way. And then it also, I think my personality, my jujitsu is kind of that way. I have people say that roll with me on a day-to-day basis. They may have other people who like can kit catch them in certain things, but they're always like grinding through them. And when they roll with me, they're like, the hard thing about you is that I may feel safe one second and then caught in the crazy calf slice or, or buggy choke or something the next second. And I think that that's a personality thing. I think that my personality shows itself in multiple ways. And one of those things is through my jujitsu. And one of those things is my career. And I like how it kind of all intermingles. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of my favorite things about jujitsu, especially over the long term, is you develop a jujitsu personality and you start to see where you can add value back to the team. You know, even if you are a hobbyist black belt who barely trains and never competes, by the time you get to black belt, everyone's going to have something that they can contribute back. There's some value. Everyone's going to have that one area where they really excel. The team benefits from having that person around. Uh, and it's just so cool to see people's development through the sport and to identify where their their strengths are and how they can then provide value to the other people on the mat. So it's one of the things that I think really is the best part of about jujitsu and it only really starts to unlock once you get to like brown belt and beyond. Yeah. I'm excited just going forward, continuing to be a voice for the community. I love that I've got a platform now. I'm not famous by any stretch of the imagination, but people who don't know anything about jujitsu who follow my Instagram are going to like, my goal is to make you get targeted by jujitsu ads. When you follow me, (laughs) you're going to see so much dumb jujitsu shit. 
that your algorithm is going to say, hey, this guy wants to learn about jujitsu. And I've had so many people who follow me because of movies that then get into jujitsu by watching me talk about it, posting about it, get excited enough to go and try a class. And then later on, tell me like a year or two later, hey, you're the reason I started jujitsu and I just want to say thanks. And that's like one of the coolest feelings is being able to spread something that has been so positive for you to other people who may not have been exposed to it any other way. But because they happen to follow my dumbass Instagram, they found the sport that they like and can do. And I think that another thing I like about being in the position I'm in is that I'm not, uh, yeah, again, 37 years old. I'm not necessarily young. I'm not old either. I'm kind of in that like middle ground right now and I feel good about everything. And I know that I can do this the rest of my life. And it's cool to know that there are people out there who find some sort of exercise finally that they can have fun doing. And hopefully, as long as they treat their body right, listen to it, don't overexert, they're going to be able to do it the rest of their lives too. So yeah, I feel like I'm in a very fortunate position. And also, I know that a lot of people have me on mute probably who don't like the jujitsu stuff and are just like, God damn it, this guy's talking about this thing again. But it's worth it for me. I'd rather lose followers over posting about jujitsu if it means that I also have that one random person who found it because of me. Amazing, man. Well, let's talk about that platform. Tell us about the movie. If people want to see it, you know, give us the pitch. Give us the elevator speech here. No spoilers. And where can people go to watch it? Uh, yeah. So The Art of Self-Defense came out in 2019. It's a movie starring Jesse Eisenberg. It's a movie about a guy who gets mugged and, like I said, desperately afraid of other men at this point, finds a karate studio and really takes to it. And he finds not only that he's got this community now, he has a sense of belonging and he's starting to better himself. And it all starts to get darker and weirder from there. Also, there's a enigmatic sensei, literally named sensei in the film, played by Alessandro Nivola. And uh, he's fantastic in it. A lot of people I'll train with who don't know me either will find out about it after the fact and be like, why didn't you say you directed that? That's so cool. And it's because I'm when I'm on the mats, I'm just on the mats. But always happy to talk about it. If you ever see me and been a fan of that film, please let me know. But yeah, yeah. So they can find The Art of Self-Defense on Max, which is what HBO is known as now, stupidly. Um, it's on Max, and then you can download or I guess pay for it on like iTunes and all of that. My first feature, Faults, is available on Amazon Prime, and my most recent feature, Duel, starring Karen Gillan and Aaron Paul, is on Hulu. So opportunities on every film to watch via a streaming platform if you've got the membership. And uh, hopefully once the strike is over, I'll get to make something else again. And I know that even if it's not involving jujitsu, it's going to definitely have some sort of... I don't know, hint or nod towards it. At least uh, that's been the case so far. So definitely kind of keep putting that my favorite thing in the world and my second favorite thing in the world. Yeah. And then you can find me on Instagram. I'm Riley Stearns on there. And also definitely check out Hobbyist on YouTube. We have an Instagram page as well at Hobbyist Inc. Um, but trying to post jujitsu videos that look like skate films. And uh, hopefully soon we're, we're going to have a pretty cool profile with an ADCC medalist. So not the, I guess the joke with hobbyists is that uh, it's for hobbyists and also about pros at the same time. So we're all jujitsu athletes. We all train. We all love it. I'm trying to just like take that word back, I guess, a little bit, not make it as much of a put down and more of like, yeah, it is cool to be a hobbyist. And even the best in the world are going to be hobbyists someday. So yeah, let's all embrace it. Absolutely. It's so funny because from my experience, the only people who beat themselves up over the hobbyist label are the hobbyists. The pros usually love hobbyists. You know, they're 
just happy that people are willing to come and pay them to learn jujitsu, right? Yeah, that's the reason they make money. Yeah, yeah. It's usually hobbyists who have this weird self-loathing thing. And I know I've had that in the past too. And man, I've had very high level competitors give me shit for that and tell me, look, hobbyists are sometimes the most important people in the room, right? You really have to stop thinking of yourself that way because it is not an aspect of your worth or your merit that you do this for fun, right? In a lot of ways, that's a huge celebration and everyone should be happy about it. Kit Dale, last example I'll give is Kit Dale is one of the guys who trains at our academy. He usually goes to the night classes and rolls with um, some high-level athletes that he brings in or what have you. But one of his hardest roles is a black belt under Sean who is by all definitions a hobbyist and Kit has the hardest time passing that guy's guard. And that's saying a lot because Kit makes me feel like a first day white belt when I roll with him. And it's great to see that a glorified hobbyist is able to still give the pros some problems sometimes too. So yeah, in my opinion, the word hobbyist is a great word and I'm proud to call myself one. Amazing, man. Well, thanks for repping the brand. I'll put a link to actually all of your stuff there in the show notes. So if anyone wants to check out Riley's films, check out The Art of Self-Defense, or connect with him and his work on Instagram. I'll put links there to make it easier. I'll also put in a link to bjjmentalmodels.com. That's where everything we make goes. At this point, 250 episodes now of timeless educational content on there for you. It's all free. You can also get access to our amazing newsletter there, as well as our whole database of concepts. If you need references to some of the things that we talk about here on the show, it's all there. Beyond that, if you want to go to the next level, that's what our premium service is all about. Uh, Beyond the audio courses that we offer there with some of the best in the sport, uh, we also include direct coaching from some of the best in the world. So if you want high-level elite black belts to break down your footage in a way that, frankly, you're probably not going to be able to get directly from an in-person instructor, give it a try. Highly recommend it. And then our community, I've been told repeatedly that that's actually the most valuable aspect of the whole service is you get an access code to be part of that. So please do consider that if you haven't already there's a week free trial bjjmentalmodels.com is where it all is but thanks a lot everyone for listening and thanks riley i was looking forward to this chat all week man and it's great to connect thank you so much and congrats on 250 huge deal thanks buddy and thanks to the listeners as well we'll talk to you next time see you soon